of all of uh, the animals on the planet that are interesting to watch, there is none more majestic to me than watching a horse in full gallop. Uh, for several years, just beyond our back fence is a pasture where they've grazed uh, horses. Uh, it's not our pasture. Those aren't our horses. We get to enjoy them, watch them. We don't shovel any manure, so it's a perfect environment situation for us to get the best out of that. We can hear them in our breakfast room as they gallop, racing from one end of the pasture to the other. All it takes is one of them to get started, and then the rest of the herd just takes off, and, and the thundering of their hoofbeats can be heard even when they are out of sight. So it's a wonderful sound and and sight. The land behind our house, about uh, 30 acres, is now up for sale. And in the meantime, the owners are grazing cattle. Well, watching a cow run is not quite the same thrill. <laughs> Many of you ride horses. Uh, I'm sure some of you own them. I know of one a young lady in our youth group that is a competitor in barrel racing and very uh, successful at it as well. I have great respect for horses and a mixture of fear. I don't know where you land on that spectrum. I personally think they somehow knew whenever I mounted that, that they didn't have to obey me. Um, I remember as a kid at camp, still feel uh, that experience as we were in line on a trail and my horse decided to pull out of the line and it galloped all the way back to the barn with me hanging onto the saddle horn for dear life. The last time I rode a horse, a few years ago, I was thrown. Well, to be perfectly honest, I fell off, is what, what happened. <laughs> thrown sounds so much more heroic, doesn't it? it was, I was cantering, it turned sharper than I did, and, and that was my final ride. Now it's just a thrill for me to be on a riding lawnmower. That's, that's perfect for me. <laughs> Turns at about the right speed that I, that I want. But I still love to watch a horse kick up its heels and and uh, gallop away their, their speed, their beauty, uh, their strength are marvelous things to watch. I happen to believe that, that the sight of a horse or several of them in full gallop will get the attention of just about anybody anywhere on the planet. Without a doubt, uh, the four horsemen that appear on the scene in Revelation chapter 6 represent the most famous horses of all time. These thundering horses and their riders have captured the imagination of artists, politicians, and preachers, and the church at large, even skeptics and cult leaders among them for centuries. I found it interesting that a young man named Vernon Wayne Howell, known to his followers as David Koresh, was obsessed with these four horsemen. He taught often about them from the book of Revelation. In fact, he claimed to be Jesus Christ. And that was a bit of a problem, of course. He claimed to have been given the task by God to open the seven seals and bring on the end of the world. His world did end, sadly, tragically, as he was killed in a standoff with officials. Much of his compound burned to the ground, tragically taking his life and the life of many of his followers. In an ironic way, though, David Koresh and all those who claim to be the Messiah before him and all those who claim to be Messiah after him do, in a way, fulfill the warning of Jesus Christ in Matthew 22 that false messiahs at an ever-increasing pace will mark the end times, culminating, of course, in the coming of the 
false, the deceiving, counterfeiting one known as Antichrist. I was fascinated again to just listen to one more of them. A man who's changed his name to Yisrael. His last name is Hawkins, Yisrael Hawkins. Maybe you've seen some of the news reports. He is, um, he's built a following of people that are now awaiting the final battle in the end of the world. Uh, semi-trucks are on this property loaded with food and water to allow his followers to survive uh, the coming uh, war, and, and all because of their faith in him, of course. In fact, they've all changed their last name to Hawkins, believing and being taught by him that that will ensure a greater security and entrance into the kingdom. I watched Mr. Hawkins uh, say nationwide that the, the final nuclear battle, or the final battle, which is nuclear in his mind, will begin on Thursday, June 12th, 2008. Okay, so if you've got laundry to do, you might, you might wait till Friday, just in case he's right. I need to go through all the labor. He's not right. Whatever war might break out, isn't the final war that ushers in the end of human history as we know it because four horsemen have to come riding in first. And the first one brings peace. Uh, Among those events with these horsemen who come at the command of heaven, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus Christ clearly referred to consecutive events that would take place during this period of tribulation. The timeline is clear. In Matthew's gospel, the Lord responded to his disciples' question. His disciples had this question, Lord, tell us about the end of the age and tell us when it will come. They wanted to know. They, they, along with the the, the Jewish people, had, had long heard the predictions of the coming wrath of God. The day of the Lord, followed by a messianic age, a messianic era, epic season where Israel would be restored to their land. Jeremiah 30, 1 to 11 is a good example of this prophecy. The disciples had also seen the miracles of Christ and they knew that those miracles undeniably proved that he possessed the power necessary to to transform the earth and bring about this messianic era. So they're asking him, okay, when's it going to happen? And how will we be able to tell when it comes? In fact, the Bible, interestingly enough, refers to the miracles in Hebrews 6, 5 of Christ as the, the powers of the age to come, still future. The prophets had long before associated birth pangs with the trouble on earth preceding the Messianic age. Isaiah 13 and Zephaniah 1 serve as two examples. Isaiah speaks in that text. He says of the anguish of humanity that they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. Isaiah 13, 8. Further on in verse 10 in that chapter, he prophesies of a time when the stars uh, will fall, constellations be darkened, the sun and moon no longer provide light. He writes this, and I quote him, the world will be punished for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. With all of these cosmic disturbances, which have not yet happened, which will happen in the future. These birth pangs then, these events, have not been fully and literally fulfilled and will not be until this time of tribulation is underway. In fact, Jesus Christ divided this time of judgment 
into two sections. The first he called the beginning of birth pangs, and, and the second portion, the great tribulation. He clearly spoke of these early birth pangs, which would intensify in horror and terror, thus the metaphor of birth pangs, increasing in intensity until the second half, which he called the great tribulation, which then climaxes with his return to earth and the establishment of the messianic age. So he told his disciples in Matthew 24, verse 30, in fact, that at the end of this time, this tribulation, the whole world will see him coming, that is the Messiah, on the clouds. By the way, the rapture of the church is not seen by the whole world. His second coming will be. In the rapture, only the church, I believe, will be taken up to meet him in the clouds and then taken on, as he promised in John 14, to his father's house with special significance for the bride of the son, in his words there. In his second coming, he will come in the clouds, not for his people, but with his people, as we'll see later. And he will be seen by the whole world as he sets up his reign literally fulfilling this reign and throne of David upon the earth. Now, when you compare uh, what Christ told his disciples in Matthew 24 with the opening of the, of the first four seals of this, uh, these birth pangs as the tribulation begins, you, you discover wonderful similarities, and they are not uh, coincidental. In Matthew uh, 24, first there in verse 5, the birth pangs begin with worldwide deception. For the sake of time, just let me read what Jesus Christ says here. He says, For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Evidently, the absence of the church will open the door to an even greater rise of deceivers. We've heard of one in past days. They are going to come more and more like the, like the birth pangs of a woman in labor, ultimately, as it were, culminating, climaxing in the coming of the great false messiah, the great deceiver. Antichrist. The first horseman, then, in Revelation 6, is the epitome of spiritual deception, corresponding perfectly with the first birth pang of this tribulation period Christ mentions in Matthew 24. The Lord goes on in verse 6 to talk about unparalleled war that will affect the world and the entire globe, so much so that the rumor of war will be on everyone's lips. It's talk of yet another to come. This also corresponds perfectly to the second seal of Revelation 6 with the opening of this seal and the coming of a red horse, even the color denoting war and bloodshed as we'll study together. The Lord moves to the next trauma on earth. These are overlapping and yet consecutive. The third birth pang, which is seen in the horrors of famine. That uh, birth pang corresponds with the black horse in Revelation chapter 6, known for the onslaught of famine. Finally, the fourth horseman appears riding a pale horse, which represents worldwide pestilence and death, corresponding with Christ's earlier promise recorded in Matthew and, in fact, Luke's gospel, which refer to untold death by earthquake and pestilence, or you could literally understand that, disease. These are the first four birth pangs of Matthew 24, and they come corresponding perfectly with the first four seals of Revelation 6, seen, personified by these four 
horsemen as they gallop onto the scene. Now, some would say, obviously, that all these things are happening. They've already happened, in fact, happening today. It's the lot of mankind. You talk about disease, war, false spiritual leaders, earthquakes. Uh, millennialists who don't believe in a rapture or tribulation period, among other events, say that these wars prophesied by Christ took place. Some of them believe uh, as early as Rome, who persecuted Christians in the early centuries. The main problem with that uh, view is that these horsemen are not riding against Christians. These seals are not coming against believers. They're judgments, birth pangs, which will affect the entire world, uh, Jesus promised in Revelation 3. Uh, they will specifically, in fact, cause the majority of humanity to curse God. Not follow him. You also need to know that Christ didn't say that these things wouldn't exist in part before the tribulation, that there wouldn't be any disease, there wouldn't be war, there wouldn't be pestilence or death until the tribulation. What he did say was that they would come with increasing pain and suffering. Like a woman in labor, these events will increase with growing intensity. The unfolding of these horrors in all their terror, in all their worldwide scope, is yet future. Even Christ clearly allowed his disciples to understand that the desecration of the temple was still future, even beyond these opening birth pangs. In fact, Christ clearly said that these first birth pangs, false messiahs, global warfare, growing famine, death by natural disasters and pestilence, all of them would take place or begin before the temple was desecrated by the Antichrist. For that to happen, what has to be built in the Middle East? The temple has yet to be built, literally fulfilling Matthew 24 and Daniel chapter 9. So it's still, yet to our day, future. Consider the fact that the Apostle John, who had heard Christ speak directly, this Mount Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and now he's the one writing this vision of the four horsemen in Revelation 6. He understood the obvious. The same Lord was prophesying with the same language, the same future events, prophesying them in the same order, clearly having in mind the same epoch or period, which he called birth pangs and great tribulation. No wonder many authors have referred to Matthew 24 as the condensed revelation. The little apocalypse, they call it. The condensed apocalypse. In the book of Revelation, the expanded apocalypse. The word apocalypse simply means revelation. Now let's have a pop quiz. Ready? The first birth pang is a proliferation of false messiahs corresponding to the... Okay, this is an open book quiz. Okay? Global wars correspond next to the... Red horse. Famine and poverty correspond to the black horse. And widespread death corresponds to the pale horse. You read so wonderfully well. All right, enough of an introduction. Let's read Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like, Thunder. Remember these four living creatures, angelic beings, circled the throne. Come, one of them demanded. And I looked, and behold, 
a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. He has limited, effective victory. This is the opening seal and the thundering of the first horseman, the planet Earth, on a white horse. Although John saw a white horse and a mute horseman riding him, this horseman represents the culmination of counterfeit messiahs and deceivers. In fact, if you want three words to identify the coming of this horseman, who is later described, and we'll look closely at the Antichrist in chapters to come. There are three words that sum up his rise to power. The first word is peace. The second word is partnership. And the third word is protection. He doesn't come to begin war. According to the events, Daniel prophesied, and John now sees, this period begins with peace, a peaceful accord. There's no peace today, is there? Certainly not in the world, in the Middle East. The world would love to have peace. Where? I mean, if there's one geographical place on the planet that occupies the thinking and the growing frustration of the civilized world, it is peace in the where? Middle East. Well, this writer comes and actually will broker, Daniel specifies, this peace. We are literally reading tomorrow's headlines today here in this text. The world is clamoring for peace and suddenly somebody's going to come and, and rise and offer this elusive thing called peace in the Middle East. East. He will succeed. And the world today is waiting and watching. It's been waiting and watching for peace anyway. And it will only grow as this man eventually surfaces in leadership. The Shiite branch of Islam believes in the existence of a final imam. In fact, you study what they believe and there are similarities to our gospel account. It's interesting. They believe there is a twelfth Imam who will come and usher in peace and Islamic justice. The president of Iran recently prayed openly at the convening of the United Nations for the soon appearing of this 12th Imam, which is the title. An Imam is simply a religious leader that's capable of leading a mosque or perhaps being the spiritual leader over the people. And he prayed openly at the United Nations. For this man to come soon. While Americans can't pray publicly in the name of Jesus, at least not out loud, without severe uh, uh, repercussions, the president of a growing world power unapologetically prayed for the coming of his spiritual leader. He opened his speech at the United Nations on September 25th, 2007. Let me read to you a little of his prayer. I quote him. Oh God... Hasten the arrival of Imam al-Mahdi and grant him good health and victory and make us his followers. Can you imagine George Bush opening a speech at the United Nations by praying, Oh God, hasten the arrival of Jesus Christ and make us his followers. I don't think so. 
he would be publicly denounced and probably have to issue an apology to the United Nations and everybody who happened to hear him. Well, there's more to this opening prayer, by the way. The followers of the Shiite branch of Islam follow men they believe to be the descendants of Muhammad. Sort of like the Catholic Church's belief in apostolic succession. They believe in literal descendants of Muhammad, even though they have difficulty proving it. These imams are the guardians of the Quran and have the right of spiritual leadership over the world. They believe that in the 10th century, the 12th and last imam disappeared, literally whisked away by God and hidden away, kept alive, and he's well until the end of history where he will appear and lead those people and the world into Islamic peace and justice. The current president of Iran is, uh, is overseeing the building of a mosque, by the way, just for the 12th imam to have as his, his headquarters. The rider of the white horse is going to fit the profile of this man of peace with supernatural power, tremendous intellect, claiming divine authority, capable of brokering a peace that will settle the Jerusalem question, in fact, even allow the temple to be rebuilt, which boggles my imagination. But Israel will finally have peace. Now, that's what leads some to suggest that this writer in Revelation 6 is the gospel. It's a metaphor for the gospel. Only the gospel can bring in that kind of peace. And I would agree, it's pretty amazing. Others would say, no, it's Jesus Christ. That, that his, his coming will bring about this kind of peace. Now, there are similarities. In Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ appears riding a white horse. He's also crowned. And he, when he comes, will certainly bring peace to the world. But there are textual reasons. I don't believe this is Christ here. I think these four horsemen serve as a unit. In fact, they are all bringing judgment. But I'll give you just a few of these reasons, and I'll take time just for a few in this study. First, I want you to understand that their weapons are different. Here in Revelation chapter 6, notice again, this rider comes and he's carrying a what? A bow. He's carrying a bow in Revelation 19. It is a sword which is used by our Lord to smite his enemies. In fact, the rider of the white horse here carries no arrows. Just a bow is mentioned, which I believe then would symbolize the rise of the Antichrist in a series of bloodless victories, diplomatic victories, victories politically as he assumes leadership. Daniel tells us of the revived Roman Empire. Now, this bow certainly indicates the threat of war. But I agree with one author who said that if you, if you look carefully here, war is not the result of this seal. Peace is the result of this first horseman. So the Antichrist will deceive the world into believing he's a man of peace. He's going to say, look, I got a gun, but it's not loaded. Now, he's got bullets in his pocket, but... The gun's not loaded at this time. And the world will fall into the devil's trap. Secondly, not only are their weapons different, but their crowns are different as well. The text reads in verse 2, And a crown was given to him. The rider on the white horse in chapter 6 is wearing, however, a stephanos. 
This is the, the, the victor's crown made of leaves. The, the athletes would be crowned with these or, or citizens who've done a good job. The problem with this crown, of course, is that it withers away and dies. They might press it in a book to keep it, but they wouldn't wear it for very long. In fact, the, the verb edothe was given there in the text. A crown was given to him. Is a very interesting verb. It appears to speak of divine permission for evil powers to carry out their wicked mission. It's a temporary delegated crown. And I want you to mark this point, and I stress it for this reason. He is given a temporary a position by God. This writer ultimately answers to God. He might be riding a white stallion, but his horse is on a leash. And the other end of that leash is in the hand of sovereign God. The crown that Christ wears in Revelation 19 is a diadema, from which we get our word diadem. It's the crown of royalty. It's the crown of kings. Thirdly, another difference, the length of their influence is vastly different. The rider of the white horse will gallop in, setting up the peace accord, Daniel 9, uh, specifies which lasts three and a half years until he desecrates the temple, beginning the last three and a half years, which Christ, also dividing the tribulation, calls this the great period of trial. This is a false peace brought about by Antichrist. Peace before the coming storm. And the storm will come. But people won't care to hear about a storm then, just as they really don't care now. I mean, they won't heed the warning signs then. Just like you might not be a follower of Christ and you don't heed the warning signs now. It will come. But the world will want peace and they will want peace at any what? Price. Those of you who enjoy history perhaps have read of the appeasement of Adolf Hitler, a man many thought was uh, the Antichrist. It's clearly chronicled how the world appeased him as they literally gave countries away. The amazing ability of the human heart to blind itself to the truth in an attempt to keep some measure of, of peace. I read The Last Lion, a large two-volume biography of Winston Churchill. And, and I read specifically to refresh my memory because I thought of it as I studied Revelation 6 of how... Uh, Neville Chamberlain, who was the uh, Prime Minister of England, made a couple of trips to meet with Hitler to try to appease him, to try to get out of him some promise that he, that he wouldn't hurt Great Britain. As if to say he can hurt others, but just leave us be. He traveled to Germany that one fateful visit and, and received from Hitler a pledge, a piece of paper, and on it a promise from Hitler that he would not harm England. When Chamberlain returned to England, he was a hero. Streets were lined with cheering crowds, and he stepped out on the balcony in that moment he wished he could take back later. But he waved that piece of paper and he shouted to the throngs, Peace for our time. Everyone sang his praises except for one man, Winston Churchill who said that Hitler, and I quote him, was simply a snake preparing to strike. 
And later when Churchill rose to speak to Parliament, decrying that pledge as nothing more than a sham peace, he was literally shouted down. A few years later, Great Britain would know it was true. The pledge of peace was fraudulent, manipulative, and it came from a man who never meant to keep it. But the world desperately wants peace. When this man signs the accord, everybody on the planet is going to breathe finally. Peace. There is no doubt that there will be suspicions and wonderings. In fact, much of the world very soon after will turn against him. But blinders are going to be put on and the cheering crowds will hail the man who promises peace to Israel and seems to be the first man ever who can broker it in the Middle East. But in a matter of a few years, Israel will see this demonically empowered man violate his pledge and unleash suffering and death and horror that that they have never experienced in any prior holocaust. This is not Christ here. This is the false Christ, Antichrist. For when Jesus Christ comes, he will usher in not a few years, but a thousand years of peace, known as the millennial reign, a kingdom that will then command worldwide victory until the final battle ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. The first writer promises peace. It lasts about 42 months. Jesus Christ brings peace and it lasts a thousand years. There's another distinct uh, difference between these two riders on white horses. Let me give you one more. They're referred to differently in the text. John observes this mute rider in chapter 6. And uh, who, who, you know, he's coming, he's thundering in on his white horse. And I can just picture nostrils flaring and hoofbeats flying. And he simply refers to him here as... It's writer. In chapter 19, the, the given due, deserving of our Lord, is provided as he comes thundering onto the world scene. And in Revelation 19, he is called none other than the King of kings and Lord of lords. Finally, let me give you one more, actually. What they commence in their coming is totally and drastically different. The first writer comes to commence the tribulation. The second writer comes to commence the millennial kingdom. The false Messiah rides in as the birth pangs begin, triggering a time following a brief period of peace of chaos and and trouble. And all of it will last for seven years. The true Messiah rides in as the tribulation ends, bringing in the messianic age of a thousand years of majesty as he sits upon the throne of David, literally fulfilling all of the prophecies of his second coming, just as his first coming prophecies literally came true. The only permanent peace, ladies and gentlemen, anyway, comes from the true Prince of Peace. And when he ushers in his peace, it will usher in such amazing conditions on this planet that we can only speculate and anticipate and with what little we're given and we're going to make a lot out of as we get into the text on what that kingdom is going to be all about. The next horseman to arrive 
is riding a red horse. It's fitting because blood is going to flow in the path of its galloping hooves. In my study, I realized by the time I got to the red horse, we would be just about out of time. But before we say farewell to our study and the white horseman, let me draw some needed warnings from what the globe is going to experience. Those of us who know Christ, I believe, will be with him. But we can learn from his deceptive ways things about deception even now. Let me give you a couple of observations. First, deception works because it models as much of the truth as possible. It, it, it works because it sounds like the truth. It looks like the truth. It smells like the truth. It, it talks. It uses terms of truth. Like the man in the news that I referenced earlier, Yisrael Hawkins, who turned with the reporter to the book of Revelation and announced the coming of a terrible war. He was right about that. War is coming. There is a final war coming. Then he said in his interview, it will be a nuclear war. Now he's guessing. We don't know for sure. Then he said it will start on June 12, 2008. No, it won't. Four horsemen have to gallop in first, and the Middle East must enjoy something they do not enjoy now, namely peace and so much more. But he's right on one count. War is coming. He's wrong on assuming the weapons used, and he's wrong on declaring the date. In fact, I, I replayed the interview. It was actually on YouTube. I replayed it several times to listen to what he said, and he made a brief statement that told me a lot. He said, June 12th is in the hidden codes. And then he referred back to the Bible. That told me a lot. He's getting his information not from a clear understanding of Scripture, but from the torturing of, of letters and the combinations of letters to come up with all sorts of fancy and uh, fanciful prophecies. You know what's amazing to me? What's amazing to me is this man has already announced that nuclear war would begin twice before. Why don't people read the resumes of prophets? Huh? He's already announced it would come. He's also facing a trial in Texas for bigamy. Soon after this date comes and goes, he's charged with having multiple wives among his followers, as many as 30 he's involved with. From what I researched about this false teacher, there were hundreds of people, by the way, in Kenya who believed him in his last prophecy that nuclear war would begin September 12, 2006. They sold their land. Their pets quit their jobs. They moved into basement bunkers. All of them wore gas masks. And they waited with their barrels of grain to something that didn't come. Those who believe the Bible gained one more black eye to our watching skeptical world. Right now, ladies and gentlemen, there are about a hundred trailers on this man's compound stocked with food and supplies which his company by the way produces from which his followers purchase stocked with all of this where they await the end of the world right now seeds of truth but bushels of deception that leads to distraction 
the loss of focus and integrity, even immorality, as blinded people ignore the cover-up of other delusions and greed, and worse yet, worse yet, this affects me, this affects you, worse yet, a public disgrace on Bible believers everywhere who claim to believe the book of Revelation is true. It's embarrassing to me. Deception works because it uses biblical terminology, biblical concepts. But look underneath and you'll find pride and immorality and greed covering up the true motives of these who lead people astray. Not only, secondly, does deception model as much of the truth as it can, but it, it's always been a choice weapon of Satan. This goes all the way back to the garden. It was his first weapon of choice. Soft words. Appealing lures, deceiving statements. Now, maybe you'd be the last person on the planet to leave Raleigh, carry our apex, Garner, wherever you live, and, and, and head to Abilene, Texas, buy a couple buckets of grain and, and join this Yisrael Hawkins and change your last name. And you're thinking, there's absolutely no way I'd, I'd ever do that. But maybe for you, It's a different kind of deception, a deception that is just as distracting and potentially dangerous, if not deadly, to your testimony and integrity and purpose in life. Here's one of his favorites. Here's one of his favorite deceptions that, that that might be affecting you and me today. It goes like this. The grass is greener over there. No, over there. No, no, no. Over there. No, it's over there. And we spend our lives spinning our wheels searching for this elusive pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Here's another popular one, especially among churchgoers. God wants you happy first and foremost. You know, all that... All that stuff about holiness and discipline, that kind of talk's going to hold you back and hold you down. He wants you happy. Or how about this one? Believe in yourself. All the answers you need are in your heart, which is deceitful, depraved, above everything else. Or here's one that's always popular. Whatever you want, you should have. Just name it. You know, place your faith to it. And don't hang around people that rain on your your parade by saying maybe you shouldn't have it. You go for it. One more. Don't uh, get so hung up on guilt and, and sin. You're only human. Now, I know earlier I told you you were divine, but when it comes to sin, you're only human. That's very convenient, isn't it? So don't worry about it. Listen, ladies and gentlemen, deception is so powerful in turning our eyes on others or on ourselves, our things, our path, ultimately away from Christ. That's why it's so critical for the believer in Christ to daily surrender to the authority of the word and will and worship of God. Maybe you're wondering, where will I stand in that future day? Wrong question. The question is, where are you standing today? 
How are you related to Jesus Christ right now? That's the question. I like the way Charles Kettering once wrote this statement. He said, I am interested in the future because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. Are you concerned? Where are you going to spend the rest of your life that has everything to do with how you're spending it today? I want to warn you again, don't just follow any white horseman. He may be leading you away from Christ. It is the word of God which announces the assurance that we can have not only today but for the future. When John, the same apostle, wrote, these things I've written to you that you may what? Know, not think so, hope so, that you may know that you have eternal life, 1 John 5, 12. Well, how do you know? John wrote earlier, listen, this is the testimony. Here it is. God has given unto us eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. As simple as that. How are you related to Jesus Christ now? Listen, I want to warn you, don't don't hitch your wagon to the wrong horse. One horseman will lead to everlasting death. The Son of God will lead to everlasting life. 